Beyond the Wall of Sleep by H.P. Lovecraft I have an exposition of sleep come upon me. Shakespeare I frequently wondered if the majority of mankind ever paused to reflect upon the occasional titanic significance of dreams and of the obscure world which they belong. Whilst the greater number of our nocturnal visions are perhaps no more than faint and fantastical reflections of our waking experience, Freud, to the contrary, with his puerile symbolism, there are certain remainders whose inmundane and ethereal character permits of no ordinary interpretation, and whose vaguely exciting and disquieting effect suggests possible minute glances into a sphere of mental existence no less important than the physical life, yet separate from that life by all but an impassable barrier. From my experience, I cannot doubt that man, when lost to terrestrial consciousness, is indeed sojourning in another and incorporeal life of far different nature from the life we know, and of which only the slightest and most indistinct memories linger after waking, from whose blurred and fragmentary memories we may infer much, yet prove little. We may guess that in dream life, matter and vitality, as Earth knows such things, are not necessarily constant, and that time and space does not exist as our waking selves comprehend them. Sometimes I believe that this less material life is our truer life, and that our vain presence on the terraqueous globes is itself a secondary or merely virtual phenomenon. It was from a youthful reverie filled with speculations of this sort that I arose one afternoon in the winter of 1900 through 1901 when to the state psychopathic institution which I served was brought to the man whose case has ever haunted me since so ceasingly. His name, as given on the records, was of Joe Slater, or Joe Slaughter, and his appearance was that of a typical denizen of the Catskills Mountain region, one of those strange, repellent scions of primitive colonial peasant stock whose isolation for nearly three centuries in the hilly vastness of the little-traveled countryside caused them to slip into a kind of barbaric degeneracy, rather than advance their more fortunately placed brethren of thickly settled districts. Among these odd folks, who correspond exactly to the decadent elements of white trash in the South, laws and morals are non-existent, and their general mental status is somewhat below that of other sections of the Native American people. Joe Slater, who Joe Slater, who came to the institution in the vigilant custody of four state policemen, and who was described as a highly dangerous character, certainly presented no evidence of his perilous disposition when first I beheld him. Though well above the middle stature, and somewhat of a brawny frame, he was given an absurd appearance of harmless stupidity by the pale sleepy blueness of his small watery eyes, the scantness of his neglected and never-shaven growth of yellow beard, and the listless drooping of his heavy nether lip. His age was unknown, since among his kind neither family records nor permanent family ties existed, but from the baldness of his head and front, from the decayed conditions of his teeth, the head surgeon wrote him down as a man about forty. 
From the medical and court documents, we learned all that could be gathered in his state. This man, a vagabond, hunter, and trapper, had always been strange in the eyes of his primitive associates. He habitually slept at night beyond the ordinary time, and upon waking would often talk of unknown things in a manner so bizarre as to inspire fear even in the hearts of an unimaginative populace. Not that his form of language was all unusual, for he never spoke save in the debased patois of his environments, but the tone and tenor of his utterances were of such mysterious wildness that none might listen without apprehension. He himself was generally as terrified and baffled as his auditors, and within an hour after awakening, would forget all that he had said, or at least all that had caused him to say what he did, relapsing into a bovine, half-amiable normality, just like that of the other hill-dwellers. As Slater drew older, it appears that his maternal aberrations had gradually increased in frequency and violence until about a month before his arrival at the institution. Had occurred the shocking tragedy which caused his arrest by the authorities. One day near noon after a profound sleep, begun in a whiskey debauch, about five of the afternoon, the man had roused himself suddenly with ululation so horrible and unearthly that they brought several neighbors to his cabin, a filthy sty which he dwelled with a family as indescribable as himself. Rushing into the snow, he flung his arms aloft and commenced a series of leaps directly into the air, the while shouting his determination to reach some big cabin with brightness in the roof and walls and floors and the loud queer music far away as two men of moderate size sought to restrain him he had struggled with maniacal force and fury screaming of his desire and need to find and kill a certain thing that shines and shakes and laughs at length and after temporarily felling one of his detainers with a sudden blow he flung himself upon the other in a demonic ecstasy of bloodthirstiness shrieking fiendishly that he would jump high into the air and burn his way through anything that stopped him. Family and neighbors had now fled in panic, and the more courageous of them returned. Slater was gone, leaving behind a recognizable pulp-like thing that had once been a living man, but an hour before. None of the mountaineers had dared to pursue him, and it is likely that they would have welcomed his death. But then several mornings later, they heard his screams for a distant ravine. They had realized that he had somehow managed to survive, and that his removal in one way or the other would be necessary. They had followed an armed searching party, whose purpose, whatever it may have been originally, became that of a sheriff's posse, after one of the seldom popular state troopers had then questioned and finally joined the seekers. On the third day, Slater was found unconscious in the hollow of a tree, and was taken to the nearest gaol, where alienists from Albany examined him as soon as his senses returned. To them, he told a simple story. He had, he said, gone to sleep one afternoon about sundown after drinking much liquor. He had awakened to find himself standing, bloody-handed in the snow before his cabin, the mangled corpse of his neighbor, Peter Slater, at his feet. Horrified, he had taken to the woods in a vague effort to escape from the scene that must have been his own crime. Beyond these things, he seemed to know nothing, nor could the experts questioning of his interrogators bring out a single additional fact. 
That night, Slater slept quietly. And the next morning, he had wakened with no singular features, save a certain alteration in expression. Dr. Bernard, who had been watching the patient, thought he had noticed in the pale blue eyes a certain gleam of particular quality, and in the facet lips, an all but imperceivable tightening, as if of intelligent determination. But when questions later relapsed into the habitual vacancy of the mountaineer, and only reiterated what he had said on the previous day. On the third morning occurred the first of the man's mental attacks. After some show of easiness and sleep, he burst forth in a frenzy so powerful that the combined effort of four men was needed to bind him in a straitjacket. The alienist listened with keen attention to his words. Since their curiosity had been aroused to a high pitch by the suggestion, yet mostly conflicting and, and incoherent stories of his family and neighbors, Slater's raved. Slater raved upward for fifteen minutes, babbling in his backward dialect of great edifices of light, oceans of space, strange music, and shadowy mountains and valleys. But most of all, did he dwell upon some mysterious blazing entity that shook and laughed and mocked at him. This vast, vague personality seemed to have done him a terrible wrong. To kill it and triumph the revenge was his paramount desire. In order to reach it, he said he would soar through the abyss of emptiness, burning every obstacle that stood in his way. Thus ran his discourse, until with the greatest suddenness he ceased. The fire of madness died from his eyes. And in dual wonder, he looked at his questioners and asked why he was bound. Dr. Bernard unbuckled the leathern harness and did not restore it till night, until he succeeded in persuading Slater to don it of his own volition, for his own good. The man had now admitted he had sometimes talked queerly, though he knew not why. Within a week, two more attacks appeared, but from them the doctors learned little. On the source of Slater's vision, they speculated at length. For since he could neither read or write, and apparently had never heard of a legend or fairy tale, his gorgeous imagery was quite inexplicable. That it could not come from any known myth or romance that made especially clear by the fact that the unfortunate lunatic expressed himself only in his own simple manner. He raved things he claimed to experience, but which he could not have learned through any normal or connected narrative. The alienists soon agreed that the abnormal dreams were the foundation of the trouble. Dreams whose vividness could for a time completely dominate the waking mind of this basically inferior man. With due formality, Slater was tried for murder, acquitted on the grounds of insanity, and then committed to the institution wherein I held so humble a post. I have said that I am a constant speculator concerning dream life, and from this you may judge of the the eagerness which I applied myself to the study of the new patients as soon as I had fully ascertained the facts of his case. He seemed to sense a certain friendliness in me, born no doubt of the interest I could not conceal in the gentle manner in which I questioned him, not that he ever recognized me during his attacks, when I hung breathlessly upon his chaotic but cosmic word pictures. But he knew me in his quiet hours when he could sit by his barred window reaving baskets of straw and willow, and perhaps pining for the mountain freedom he could never enjoy again. His family never called to see him, probably 
they had found another temporary head after the manner of the decadent mountain folk. By degrees, I commenced to feel an overwhelming wonder at the mad and fantastical conceptions of Joe Slater. The man himself was pitiably inferior in mentality and language alike, but his glowing titanic visions through described in a barbaric and disjointed jargon were absurdly things which only a superior or even exceptional brain could conceive. How, I often ask myself, could the stolid imagination of a Catskills degenerate conjure up sights whose very possession argued a lurking spark of genius? How can any backwoods dullard have gained so much of, as an idea of these glittering realms of some neural radiance in space, which Slater ranted in his furious delirium? More and more I inclined to the belief that in the pitiful personality who cringed before me lay the disorder nucleus of something beyond my comprehension, something infinitely beyond the comprehension of my more experienced but less imaginative medical and scientific colleagues. And yet, I could extract nothing definite from the man. The sum of all my investigations was that in kind of a semi-incorporeal dream life Slater wandered or floated through resplendent and prodigious valleys, meadows, garden cities and palaces of light in a region unbound and known to men and that there he was no peasant or degenerate but a creature of importance and vivid life moving profoundly and dominantly and checked only by a certain deadly enemy who seemed to be a being of visible yet ethereal structure and who could not appear to be of human shape since slater never referred to him as a man or as ought to save a thing. This thing had done Slater some hideous yet unnamed wrong, of which the maniac, if maniac he was, yearned to avenge. From the manner in which Slater alluded to their dealings, I judged that he and the luminous thing had once met on equal terms, and in his dream existence the man was himself a luminous thing the same race as his enemy. The impression was sustained by his frequent references to flying through space and burning all that impeded his progress. Yet these conceptions were formulated in rustic words wholly inadequate to convey them, a circumstance which drove me to the conclusion that if a true dream world indeed existed, oral language was not its medium for transmission. Could it be that a dream soul inhabiting his fair body was desperately struggling to speak things that the simple and halting tongues of dullness could not utter? Could it be that I was face to face with intellectual animations that would explain the mystery if I could learn and read them? I did not tell the older physicians of these things, for middle age is a skeptical, cynical, and disinclined to accept new ideas. Besides, the head of the institution had but lately warned me in his paternal way that I was overworking, that my mind needed a rest. It had long been my belief that human thought consisted basically of atomic or molecular motion, convertible into ether waves of radiant energy like heat, light, and electricity. This belief had early led me to contemplate the possibility of telepathy or mental communication by means of a suitable apparatus, and I had in 
my college days prepared a set of transmitting and receiving instruments, somewhat similar to the devices deployed in wireless telegraphy at the crude pre-radio period. These I had tested with a fellow student, but achieving no results, I soon packed them away with other scientific odds and ends for possible future use. Now, in my intense desire to probe into the dream life of Joe Slater, I sought these instruments again and spent several days repairing them for action. When they were complete once more, I missed no opportunity in their ritual. At each outburst of Slater's violent, I would fit the transmitter on his forehead and receiver on my own, constantly making delicate adjustments for various hypothetical wavelengths of intellectual energy. I had little notion of how thought impressions, if successful, would be conveyed, aroused an intelligent response. I had but little notion of how the thought impressions would, if successfully conveyed, arouse the intellectual response in my brains, but I felt certain that I could detect and interpret them. Accordingly, I continued my experiment through informing no one of their nature. It was the 21st of February 1901 that the thing finally occurred. As I looked back across the years, I realized how unreal it seems, and how sometimes half wondered if old Dr. Fenton was not right when he charged it all to my to my excited imagination. I recalled that he listened with great patience when I told him but afterwards gave me a nerve powder and arranged for the half-year's vacation, which I departed on the next week. On the faithful night, I was wildly agitated and perturbed, for despite the excellent care he received, Joe Slater was unmistakably dying. Perhaps, perhaps it was his mountain freedom that he missed, or perhaps the turmoil in his brain had grown too acute for his rather sluggish physique. But at all events... The flames of vitality flickered low in the decadent body. He was drowsy, near the end, and as darkness fell, he dropped off into a troubled sleep. I did not strap on the straitjacket, as was customary when he slept, since I saw he was too fabled to be dangerous, even if he woke in a mental disorder once more before passing away. But I did place upon his head and mine the two ends of my cosmic radio, hoping against hope for the first and last message from the dream world in the brief time remaining. In the cell was with us one nurse, a mediocre fellow, who did not understand the purpose of the apparatus, or think to inquire into my course. As the hours wore on, I saw his head droop awkwardly in sleep, and I did not disturb him. I myself, lulled by the rhythmic breathing of, of the healthy and dying man, must have nodded off a little later. The sound of weird, lyric melody was what aroused me. Chords, vibrations, and harmonic ecstasies echoed passionately on every hand, while on my ravished sights burst this stupendous spectacle of ultimate beauty. Walls, columns, and architecture of living fire blazed effigently around the spot where I seemed to float in the air, extending upwards to an infinitely high vaulted dome of indescribable splendor. Blending with this display of palatial magnificence, or rather supplanting it at times in a kaleidoscopic rotation, there was glimpses of wide plains and graceful valleys, high mountains and inviting grottoes, covered 
with every lovely attribute of scenery which my delighted eye could conceive of, yet form wholly of some glowing ethereal plastic entity, in which constantly partook as my spirit of the matter. As I gazed and perceived that my own brain held the key to these enchanting metamorphoses for each vista which appeared to me was the one my changing mind most wished to behold. Amidst this Elysian realm, I dwelt not as a stranger, for each sight and sound was familiar to me, just as it has been for uncounted aeons of eternity before, and would be for eternities to come. Then the replendent aura of my brother of light drew near and held cloakerly with me, soul to soul, with silent but perfect interchange of thoughts. The hours was one of approaching triumph, for it was not my fellow being escaping the last form, for it is not my fellow being escaping at last from a degrading periodic bondage, escaping forever and preparing to follow the accursed oppressor even unto the uttermost fields of Aether, in that upon which be wrought a flaming cosmic vengeance, which would shake the spheres. We floated, thus for a little time, when I perceived a slight blurring and fading of objects around us, as though some force were recalling me to Earth, where I least wished to go. The form near me seemed to feel a change also, for it gradually brought its discourse towards a conclusion, and itself prepared to quit the scene, fading from my sight at a rate somewhat less rapid than that of other objects, and a few more thoughts were exchanged, and I knew the luminous one and I were being recalled. Bondage, though for my brother of light it would be the last time, the sorry planet shell being well nigh spent. In less than an hour, my fellow would be free to pursue the oppressor along the Milky Way and pass the hither stars to the confines of infinity. A well-defined shock separates my final impression of the fading scenes of light to my sudden and somewhat shamefaced awakening and straightening up in my chair as I saw the dying figure on the couch move hesitantly. Joe Slater was indeed awakening, though perhaps for the final time. As I looked more closely, I saw in the shallow cheeks shone spots of color which had never been present. The lips, too, seemed unusual, being slightly compressed, as if by the force of stronger character than had been Slater's, and the whole face finally began to glow tensely, and the head turned restlessly with closed eyes. I did not arouse the sleeping nurse, but readjust the slightly disarrange headbands of my telepathic radio, intent to catch any parting message the dreamer might have to deliver. All at once, the head turned sharply in my direction, and the eyes fell open, causing me to stare in blank amazement of what I beheld. The man who had been Joe Slater, the Catskills decadent, was now gazing at me with a pair of luminous, expanded eyes whose blue seemed subtly to have deepened. Neither mania nor degeneracy was visible in that gaze, and I felt no doubt that I was viewing a face beyond which lie an active mind of high order. At this juncture, my brain became aware of a steady external influence operating upon it. I closed my eyes to concentrate my thoughts 
more profoundly and was rewarded by positive knowledge that my long-sought mental message had come at last. Each transmitted ideas formed rapidly in my mind, and though no actual language was employed, my habitual association of concept and expression was so great that I seemed to be receiving the message in ordinary English. Joe Slater is dead. Came the soul-petrifying voice or agency from beyond the wall of sleep. My open eyes sought the couch of pain in a curious horror, but the blue eyes were still calmly gazing, and the countenance was still intelligently animated. He is better dead, for he was unfit to bear the active intelligence of the cosmic entity. His gross body could not undergrow the neat adjustment between ethereal life and planet life. He was too much of an animal, too little a man, yet it is through his efficiency that you have come to discover me, or the cosmic and planet souls rightly should never meet. He has been my torment in dire old prison for 42 of your terrestrial years. I am an entity like that yourself becomes in the freedom of dreamless sleep. I am your brother of light and have floated with you in the effigent valleys. It is not permitted. Tell your waking earth self of your real self that we are all Romans of vast spaces and travelers in many ages. Next year I will be dwelling in the dark Egypt which you call ancient, or in the cruel empire of Hans Chan, which is to come three thousand years hence. You and I have drifted to worlds that reel about the red Arcturus and dwelt in the bodies of the insect philosophers that crawl proudly over the fourth moon of Jupiter. How little does the Earth self know of life and its extent? How little indeed ought to know for its own tranquility. Of the oppressor I cannot speak. You on Earth have unwittingly felt its distant presence. You who without knowing idly gave to its blinking beacon, named Agol, the demon star, it is to meet and conquer the oppressor that I have vainly striven for aeons, held back by bodily encumbrance. Tonight I shall go as a nemesis, bearing just and blazing cataclysmic vengeance. Watch me in the night sky by the demon stars. I cannot speak longer, for the body of Joe Slater grows cold and rigid, and the coarse brains are ceasing to vibrate as I wish. You have been my friend in the cosmos, and you have been my only friend on this planet. The only soul seek for me within the repellent form which lies on this couch. We shall meet again, perhaps in the shining mist of Oran's sword, perhaps in the bleak plateau on prehistoric Asia, perhaps in unremembered dreams tonight, perhaps in other forms and aeon hence from the solar system when the solar system shall have been swept away. At this point, the thought waves abruptly seek in the pale eyes of the dreamer, or, or can I say dead man, commenced to glaze fishily. In half stupor, I crossed over to the couch and felt his wrist and found it cold, stiff, and pulseless. The shallow cheeks pale again, and the thick lips fell open, disclosing the repulsive, rotting fangs of the degenerate Joe Slater. I shivered, 
pulled a blanket over the hideous face and awakened the nurse. Then I left the cell and went silently to my room. I had on insistent and uncountable cravings for sleep, whose dreams I should not remember. The climax? What plain tale of science could boast such a rhetorical effect? I have merely set down certain things appealing to me as facts, allowing you to consume them as you will. I have already admitted to my superior, old Dr. Fenton, denies the reality of everything I have related. His vows that I had broken down with the nervous strain and badly need of long vacation on full pay, so he so generously gave me. He assures me on his professional honor that Joe Slater was but a low-grade paranoiac whose fantastical notions must have come from the crude her heredity folktales circulate even in the most decadent of communities. All of this he tells me, yet I cannot forget what I saw in the sky on the night after Slater died. Lest you think me a biased witness, another's pen must add to the final testimony, which may supply the climax you expect. I quote the following account of the star Nova Percy, verbatim from the pages of the eminent astronomical authority, Professor Garrett P. Service. On February 22nd, a marvelous new star appeared discovered by Dr. Anderson of Edinburgh, not far from Algol. No star had been visible at that point before. Within 24 hours, the stranger had become so bright that it outshone Capella. In a week or two, it had visibly faded, and in the course of a few months, it was hardly discernible with the naked eye.